Hello there. How do y'all do in there? Right. Um, I'm in a strange place, as you can tell. Stranger than usual. Just because of things that have been going on in my life in the last few weeks doesn't seem to let up. And uh, the result is that I'm kind of uh, in a spacey place right now. And that's a good time for Lent to come. And for the scriptures we're going to look at today. Uh, we're frail, and there's lots of frailty going around right now. Um, frailty in my life has been death of people that have been close to me of late. And the other great frailty is uh, sin, which is a mystical thing, sin. It results in guilt. It um, results in wickedness. And it's this, it's this label we give to that thing we don't understand that causes so much suffering and hardship in all of us. And though we hate it, we participate in it. So today is uh, the first in a series of messages devoted to Lent, the season six weeks before Easter. And Lent is a tradition that comes from a different way of doing religion than we're used to in our culture. It comes from a time where the practice of physical and mental and emotional self-discipline was part of an offering to God. And I have laughed with the rest of you at Monty Python and some of the beautiful uh, kind of, uh, is it cynicism, sort of cynical mockery of some of the practices of our religion, self-flagellation being my favorite one. <laughs> I am actually a masochist. I am. I am a dental masochist. This, you know, I like things happening to my gums. Yeah, I enjoy the dentist. I'm not alone. I know there's other people who's really good, you know, really good. Ah, working there. It's good. Other pain I don't like. Dental pain, I'm okay with that. That's strange. <laughs> you know, it is strange. Yes. But it is true. Um, you have your own little foibles, and I won't go into those or ask you to share them. I'm just trying to set an example of vulnerability. So if you see me lying in a corner, blissed out with some dental floss, just in a little groove, it's his way, just leave him. He's doing Lent. His way of repenting. The idea was this, you know, we have, the, we have in the feast days of the Christian calendar that we celebrate, we've already been through Advent, which is the, the transition of a, pro, a prophetic expectation of Messiah and Christmas, a, a, an arrival, a receiving of Messiah and the mystery of the incarnation of the God, the Son, being Messiah and coming to be among us. And the very next season after Christmas is that this Messiah was not just for Israel, but for the whole world. And Epiphany, using the symbolism of the the wise, the wise arts, the astrologers who came from the east to bow down to the one named King of the Jews, is the first great sign that he will be king of all. The gift of God to Israel was for the whole world. And then the very next season of the church calendar is Lent. And a good way to just think of it as a, on that schema is that Lent is about counting the cost and following and being a disciple of Jesus Christ. And the single toughest thing that we face in seeking to be disciples of Jesus Christ is resisting temptation. That is the story of Christian life, of human life. 
that we know that if we gratify every desire that crosses into our consciousness, we will not only harm ourselves, but we will harm others. We know that. We know, we know some desires that we ought to resist, and we know others that we need more of. And we, need, we know some that we don't understand at all, but that are there. And to put your, our eyes on Jesus and to follow in his footsteps is to involve, besides joy and, and besides this, the hope that Christ gives, also the reality that living in what is called fallen flesh, living in this stuff with its animality and its, its earthly desires, is often an impediment to us. And so 40 days of, of fasting is just a spiritual practice as a little reminder. It's not the 40 days, it's 365 days out of the year that we will need to say no to some desires and say yes to others as a regular part of the hardship of this life. Now, it gets easier. We talked earlier with, about Finn and about habits, raising children and habits, that when we build habits, a habit makes it easier to, re- to do the thing that you're in a groove for. Habits make things light and easy once you are habituated, like learning how to play a guitar is actually a habit. Really hard at first, painful, you know, fingers, you go, maybe I'll do classical or woodwinds. And then you go, no, I'm a masochist like Rob. I like pain in my fingertips. You become a guitarist. And that is a habit. And once you have it, once you have the habit of all the scales and all the chords, then you're free to habitually just play without thought. And now you can compose and jam and all that higher order stuff that even the angels in heaven playing straps. We know David did. David wasn't a fender. Oh yeah, I know, that's the two things. Protestant, Catholic, Strat, Telly, Betty and Veronica, Batman, Superman, I know, whole universe divided on which fender you prefer. It's true, I am a Telly man myself. Okay, so, I'm just going to tell a story. I'm going to tell you a story today. It's a short version of a very important story in the spiritual motifs of Israel that came right over into the Christian tradition. Is the story of David and Bathsheba from 2 Samuel, chapter 11 and 12. And that story will set us up for a little, just a running commentary. I'm going to go through Psalm 51 together with you. And if you received your sheet, you can just kind of follow along, make whatever notes come to mind, because it's just going to be a spontaneous... Meditation live of Psalm 51. But first, you need the context of this. And the tradition has been that Psalm 51 is the prayer, the the decisive prayer of repentance from the heart of King David because of an episode in his life. And that episode is found in 2 Samuel 11 and 12. So I'll just briefly give you the story. David is a king. He's a powerful king in Israel. There's seasonal, regular warfare, tribal skirmishes between Israel and all the surrounding tribes. And as each season, the season of war comes, he has troops in the field, but he has chosen this time to stay home, to be at home. And he is strutting around in the security of his palace, in the security of having armies in the field, defending the frontiers. And in his gazing across the little township of Jerusalem as it was at the time, he did indeed spot a woman named Bathsheba who was naked and beautiful and bathing on her rooftop. And seeing her, he availed himself of power structures that were at his fingertips. 
and he dispatched palace guards to bring her to him. Just so you know about power, power differential, does she have the right to say no? The king's palace guard come and say, the king wants to see you, she goes. He has sex with her. There's no reference here whether she consented, whether she had some secret love for King David. There's nothing. There's a woman minding her private life when the guards come to her door and say, the power that exists wants to see you. And she is taken. He makes love to her from his interpretation of things. And she becomes pregnant. She is now pregnant and a married woman. This is a complex situation now. He has just slept with uh, another man's wife, gotten her pregnant. And that man was named Uriah, and he was one of his, David's faithful soldiers. He was, in fact, out uh, defending Israel at the time. He was fighting at war. And so David hatches a plan. He sends a message to Uriah. The king wants to see you. Bring, come back to Jerusalem. And leaving behind the battle and his comrades, Uriah comes back to the city of Jerusalem and... David wines him and dines him and says, you're one of my best dudes, you're one of my best guys, you're a fine example of what it is to be a soldier to the king. I really, I just wanted to give you a couple of days respite, then you can go back to the fight, you know, hang around, have some wine, sleep with your wife, you know, have a little nookie on the side, and go back. It was exactly that, it was exactly that kind of slimy snide, I need you to sleep with your wife so when everybody finds out she's pregnant, they'll think you naturally are the father. That's the deal. And normally you'd think that a soldier back from war would go, get a furlough away from home. I actually have some moments in my own home. But Uriah is a man of principle. And he says, I'm not going to go home. I'm not going to lie in the comfort of my bed. I will not sleep with my wife when all of my men are out in the field dying and cannot come here and also enjoy their home life. I will sleep on the street before I sleep in bed while my men are in the field. So a man of such integrity and such honor has now become very inconvenient for King David's plan to cover up what he has done. So he contacts the general and he says, that man Uriah, he's a very powerful soldier, I need you to put him in the most dangerous part of the battle. Next time there's a frontal assault on the troops, make sure he's on the front line. The general says, yes sir, dispatches Uriah to the most dangerous part of the front, and as you know the rest, Uriah is killed in battle. Well, David now can say, I guess you don't need that wife of yours now that you're dead and gone. And so he has Bathsheba taken and brought into his palace and made into his wife. And now no one needs to know, and he's had his way. That's the story. That's chapter 11 of 2 Samuel. Right there you see a human situation. There's a lot of commentary on this. But think about this. You know the old metaphor that's used all the time, the snowball effect, or watch out. You know, you do that, things can start to snowball. I don't know if we... We're on the BC coast here, we never get any snow. I understand that it is a phenomenon, that you can take a small ball of snow and begin to roll it down a hill, and there is a phenomenon where if the snow is... Is this true? That it will actually... 
Okay, I was raised on cartoons in which you could throw a snowball down a hill and it would get bigger and bigger, right, as it packs on more snow. I believe it's true. Otherwise, what's the point of the phrase, this is going to snowball? People work with me. Snowballs grow when you begin to roll them down a hill. Thank you, thank you. Okay, what that means metaphorically is that a little thing that you begin rolling down can start to un... You didn't plan it. You want to just throw a little snowball fight. And it begins to pick up more snow, it becomes bigger, and then your little friend is down there to try to catch it. Instead, a house-sized ball rolls them over, and it goes into the village, and the rest is cartoon land. But the idea is a little sin would then be covered up with just another little one, and then swept under the carpet, and this will be okay, right? David did not wake up the morning that he saw Bathsheba and think, I need to kill her husband. That's not his thought. That came later, when he had to cover up what he had done. And so there you see a great folk tale of the consequences of beginning in your consciousness to allow sin to take root, and it begins to come out in an action that then leads to consequences that you try to cover up with more sin until it rolls you over. And right when he thought he had it made, marrying Bathsheba, now a widow, let's give her a second here. She gets bad press in every movie and every commentary I've read. Do we not know that she perhaps had married the love of her life? That she loved Uriah with all her heart? That she had no right or power or ability to resist the king who took her in a power differential that makes it rape what he did? And that for the rest of her life she would always know my first love was Uriah. Yes, she goes on to be the mother of Solomon and she gets named in the pedigree of Jesus Christ. But it's way too quick that we've made her some little little support role in the story of King David. And you'll even see in his psalm how that plays out. We have to give her the, the dignity of having been wronged. Having been wronged. And to end up being married to the king. To end up in those circumstances to live in the palace with the king uh, was not like her fantasy life. Someone sinned against her and wrecked her life. Now she has to rebuild. The tragedy doesn't end. Nathan the prophet becomes aware of this. So he comes to the king and the king is the king. And the king in this system, in this culture, the king is also the supreme judge in a court All things could be appealed to the highest court where the king would sit. So Nathan comes to the king and says, I have a case for you. Something terrible has happened in the land, O king. Think about this. There's a guy. He owns a lot of sheep and they're all really, really beautiful sheep. He has a beautiful flock. And that guy has discovered that across the valley lives a man who has only one little sheep. And he is envious of that one little sheep, even though he has a whole fold full. And so he kills the man and steals his sheep. What shall we do, O King David? And David is enraged that such a thing has happened in my kingdom. That man should be seized and punished and pay for it with his life what he has done. And so Nathan says, those are awesome words, King. You're the man. And that's where David is caught. And, well, normally you kill the prophet, right? You just keep that snowball getting bigger. You change religions. You change churches. <laughs> you know what? 
You just keep the lie going on. But the, the reason that we love King David is no matter how much pressure he came under, when it got to the worst, he always turned to God. He always returned to God because he knew something about God's heart and God's character. And he knew that what he had done was very serious sin. And in the religious law of Israel, he should die. He should die for adultery and murder himself. He knows that he's a hypocrite. He knows that he has passed judgment on others. And from the words of his own mouth, he has called a death sentence upon his own head. And so, we have received this piece of literature, Psalm 51. This was the prayer that King David prayed to God. And as we go through it, the most important thing I want you to just see is God, the character of God here, and what David thinks about God. His first phrase is, Have mercy upon me, O God. Have mercy upon me. Because I am a sinner. You know what I have done. And I have pronounced guilt upon myself. I know what I have done is wrong, that I have lied, that I have covered it up. And I need mercy because I cannot defend myself. I cannot be exonerated. There will be no evidence in the court of law to get me off. I am guilty. And so I need mercy. But look what he appeals to. Have mercy on me, O God, because of your unfailing love. Because of your great compassion. He is appealing to the character of God. He's not doing anything to point to himself. He's not saying, have mercy upon me because I'm weak. Have mercy upon me because I'm just a man and she was so beautiful. Have mercy upon me because I try really, really hard and you know that. I'm good 99% of the time. He's not doing any of that self-referential stuff. He's saying, I am nothing but a guilty sinner and I always have been. And therefore, when I say, have mercy upon me, O Lord, I'm asking for you, out of your love, out of your character of compassion, to blot out the stain of my sin. That is the core of all grace and of all of our hopes in God. Our hope in God, our faith in God, is because He is loving. He is compassionate. Our hope is not on anything on our part. So He says, wash me clean from my guilt. Purify me from my sin. Couplets like that are common in Hebrew poetry. But there's a very clear distinction between guilt and sin. To say, wash me clean of my guilt, in today's language, we're describing a psychological state of feeling the guilt and cannot sleep at night and self-loathing and fear and all of what comes along with psychological guilt now must be healed. It has to be healed somehow. I can't bring Uriah back from the dead. I can't undo and the guilt will go away because I have fixed it all. I'm living with the psychological torment of knowing what I've done Purify me from sin. Sin has nothing to do with the psychological state. Sin is an objective moral wrong. Whether he felt it, whether he realized it, the difference is, I was a sinner the second I slept with Bathsheba, killed her husband. The guilt came later. It's both the objective moral wrong that I've done needs to be forgiven, purified from that, 
and the spiritual sickness in my soul now. The guilt. This is what I ask you to heal, O God. Then the very controversial verse. Against you and you alone have I sinned. And I have done evil what is in your sight. Now why would that be controversial? What about Bathsheba? What about Uriah? What about the responsibility and the honor of the nation of Israel? What it expects of its king? You alone? I have sinned. Well, lots of commentary on that one. David's no idiot. He knows, he knows that. What he's saying is, when I sin against a fellow human being, I am sinning against that person. But I'm sinning through that person. I'm sinning against God. Every sin, though it has a proximate victim, is an affront to the holiness of God. And for him to say against you and you alone have I sinned, is simply, he's not disregarding Bathsheba. He's saying, I recognize that the, that the depths of the sin is not what I did to her or Uriah. It is that I have done that against you. I have done that against the God who created both of those people. I have done evil in your sight. Then he declares more about God. He declares God's righteousness by saying, you will be proved right in what you say, and your judgment against me is just. Whatever happens now, O Lord, to me, and there were consequences. And the prophet declared what those consequences would be. But David is in a humble and honest state and saying, because you are the God of holy righteousness, I know that whatever you judge me to be, however you judge and however you punish me, it will be right. I I believe that about you. It will be just and I will have deserved it. For I am born a sinner. Here comes some more controversial verses. Born a sinner, yes, from the moment my mother conceived me. And the next verse, but you desire honesty, and honesty from the womb, teaching me wisdom even there. It's a, it's a, it, your translation might look a little bit different. It's a really interesting comment. Um, this is not original sin, people. This was used to support original sin. I was born a sinner conceived in my mother's womb. I was a sinner in the con- first day of conception in my mother's womb. I was already a sinner. Uh, is, is not what this is teaching. And that doctrine has to be very carefully handled. It's so misused in Western Christianity. Again, it is the hyperbole of a poet saying, I am confessing that I am a sinner through and through. Here he's doing it retroactively in time. All the way back to my first little seed existence was I a sinner. And I'm declaring this to you. Not just what I've done to Bathsheba and Uriah. All of my life and all of the sins, I'm bringing them all to you and declaring that I was a sinner from the moment I was conceived. And yet, from the moment I was conceived in the womb, in the womb, You already there desired honesty and holiness and were willing to teach me, even then, your wisdom. Look at that poetry. The Holy Spirit of God is right there in my conception, already lulling me and pulling me and wooing me toward the righteous and the good and the holy. But there was also a desire for sin right there. The human condition. 
Now purify me. Purify me from my sins and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. He is saying, only if you purify me will I be clean. Only if you wash me will I be whiter than snow. Because I cannot do it. If I want to be whiter than snow, only your forgiveness can bring it about. I want to be clean. I'm ritually washing myself every day to wash the guilt out of me. Every ancient religion has this. The equation of physical cleanliness with spiritual and psychological healing. And to compulsively wash and cleanse ourselves in the temple and it doesn't get to the soul. Something Jesus spoke directly about. All that external religion. It's what's in the heart. There's where the cleansing has to come from. And you can't forgive your own sins. You can't undo your own guilt. But if God does, even though the rest of the world holds a grudge and hates hates you, if God could forgive me, if God could wash away my sins, then I would be cleansed. And then you could give me my joy back. There's the healing. Then I could have my joy back. For you have broken me by giving me a conscience that is militating against me. Now let me rejoice. Don't keep looking at my sin. Remove the stain of my guilt. I need to know that you're not looking at my sin. Remove the stain of my guilt. Commentary. One of the problems with Jesus Christ in his uh, life here was the kind of people he hung out with. Now if you're going to be a Messiah, if you're going to be a religious leader, if you're going to start a big movement of holiness, you better hang around with the right people. And this criticism Jesus faced all the time. You know, the old birds of a feather flock together. We will judge your character by the kind of friends you hang out with. You know who hangs out with Jesus? Sinners. All kinds of messed up, screwed up sinners are flocking around that guy. What's going on there? Because Jesus did not look at them as sin. He did not look at their sins. He saw them as hurting, harmed sheep that are lost. Lost sheep are not held in contempt. Lost sheep are, you feel sorry for them. You know that they're afraid and they're lost and they don't know what they're doing. And you go and you seek to find them and bring them home. Don't be one who looks at my sins. <coughs> Remove the stain of my guilt. And as for my inner psyche again, create in me a clean heart. Renew a loyal, a loving spirit in me again. Do not banish me from your presence. Do not take away your Holy Spirit from me, but give me back that joy. Give me back that joy that made him called the man after God's own heart, the one whose character, even as a young man, had him selected from all his brothers that this one will be a great king. Why? Because he loved God. He loved God, and that was the joy of his life. His love and his faith in God was manifest in the courage and the character that we begin to see when he stands alone against Goliath and fights Goliath on his own with the weapons of a shepherd boy all the way to his victory and his rulership in Jerusalem. It was in his delight and his faith and his hope in God that he had joy. Now he had lost it in his own sin. Restore to me the joy the joy of your salvation. Look at this sentence. Make me willing to obey you. This is the problem that St. Paul talked about. I want to obey you. I plan to obey you. 
I set out to obey you, and then somebody really beautiful has a bath over there, and I stop obeying you. Not that you can relate to that, right? Find some equivalent. I need you to grant me by your grace the willingness to obey. That's actually standard Protestant theology. You've got to put in a plug always for Protestants once in a while. I do that because I bash them all the time. So they need to dust them off and go, we're still the one and only true way to be Christian. Okay, one of the core emphases, one of the core emphases of, of Protestant Christianity is that your salvation is a sovereign gift of God. So this choose Jesus business is bad lingo. But so is your obedience and your willingness to continue as a disciple of Jesus once you are saved. That's still a gift of God. St. Paul is very clear on those kind of sovereign terms that God has even laid out the good deeds for us each day for us to just walk into those deeds that he has laid before us. Now just bracket all the problems of predestination and free will and all that. Just bracket that for now. Because those are often pseudo-problems created by the Western way of rational thinking. But here he's saying, he's not saying, restore to me the joy of my salvation, and boy will I obey you. Boy will that motivate me. Once I feel great and clean again, I'm going to be holy and the king again. He's, he is saying, I am nothing, and I'm asking you, even to make me willing to obey you. Implicit in this is the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, that the only reason he's even praying this kind of prayer is that the Spirit of God is already in him, enabling him to experience this kind of repentance. Then he says, I, I'm imagining something happening. I'm imagining that you will lift from me this sickness and this burden of guilt and sin and shame. And when I feel it lifted, I so want to be out there telling everybody about it. I so want to be back telling people how glorious the God of Israel is, that he is the forgiver of sins. I can see myself now being the one who can tell the story of what rebellion I have been through, and yet you have forgiven me. That's exactly what St. Paul said. He chose me, a killer of Christians, so that forgiving a killer... He could use me as an example of his forgiveness, of his mercy, that even a Christian killer could be saved and turned into a disciple of Christ. And here is him saying, boy, if you could set me free and make me willing to obey, oh, I would teach, I would teach your ways to all the rebels that they would return to you. Forgive me for the murder that I committed, O oh God, O oh God who saves. Then I will be joyful and sing of your forgiveness. Unseal my lips, O Lord, that my mouth may praise you. That's a nice little move. He's not saying, he's not making a deal. It's not conditional. If you forgive me, I'll be such a big mouthpiece, they'll write this prayer down and publish in a book and people will be preaching it for 2,000 years. Forgive my sins and I could bring you a lot of publicity. Can we work something out here? It's not that. It's, I have to experience your grace and your mercy and your joy again. And when I experience that, I will, I will be able to gush forward in praise and thanksgiving that even a rotten sinner like me has been forgiven. All the more glory to you. 
Then he says, you don't desire sacrifice. I know that. Really? This guy's the king of the religion of God with the temple and the priests and the sacrifices. And when you do commit sins like this, there are sacrifices you're supposed to go through, for goodness sakes. He's blowing off the religion that was given to Moses. And he's saying, I could go do that. I know I could go do that and sacrifice the, sh- the proper offerings. And if nothing changes in here, you have not lifted the burden from me and I have not been forgiven. But that is a temptation. I know as the king, Nathan might expect me to show up in the temple and he'll do his job and slaughter an animal. And, and, there, and maybe that happened. Maybe he went right ahead and had a ritual cleansing. I wouldn't doubt it. It's not wrong, the religion. But it would only have been effective if he came with a broken and contrite heart and was ready to have the blood of the Lamb poured over him to cover his sin. But he knew the order of things. And he said, I know that the sacrifice you want isn't some animal or some incense offering. You want someone to stop lying to you and bring their humble spirit, broken under the weight of their own guilt, but coming to you speaking truth, confessing sins. You desire a broken spirit and a repentant or a contrite heart, a heart that is genuinely sorry. We are taught later on in the New Testament a beautiful phrase, those who confess their sin are in that very act receiving the forgiveness of your sins. You don't confess and then wait. The sign that you have the faith that receives the forgiveness is that you are already truthfully declaring that you are a sinner. And then the scripture goes on to say, and if we do confess our sins, tell the truth. Tell the truth to God of what we've done. He is faithful and just to forgive us all of our iniquities. There is no sin that he cannot forgive. There is no amount of sin, including repetitive, same old stuff. He doesn't go, that's the 491st time you've done that. You're out. That's it. How much patience am I supposed to have with you? I'm working with mystical numbers here. Seven, forty. I multiply them. And then you go past that. What can I do? I don't do math. Seven times seventy, is it? Forty-nine, four hundred ninety. See, I don't do math. That's why I'm a preacher. In this little community, all three hundred of you, Okay, I can't count and I can't do math. But he forgives every one of those sins even they're in the thousands. Now, as you know, I've shared with you a hundred times that my life story is the story of addiction and the struggle of addiction. And the verse that all of us addicts like to hang on to is that one where Peter says to Jesus, if my neighbor sins against me, Seven times? Should I forgive them seven times? Thinking that would impress Jesus. Oh, he used the mystical number seven. And that's where Jesus said, look, if your neighbor sins seven times, 70, that's 490, I'm told. If your neighbor sins 490 times, you still forgive if they come seeking it. Now, the implication is not that after 490, shoot them. They have up to 490 and that's it. That's the new law. That's not what Jesus is saying. He's saying somewhere between seven sins and 490 sins, you will have forgotten to count and you will have begun the habit of forgiving. And by 490, you will be gracious. You will not be counting. 
or shall we start counting your sins? So there is no amount of sin, no degree and depth of sin that is not covered in the mercy and blood of Jesus Christ because God knows all anyway. And before we confess our sin, it's not like he's going, I wonder what they're up to. You've got that sneaky posture about you, David. Have you been swiping duckies from another child's cupboard? There's a reference for you. A generation raised on veggie tales. How do you do the Bathsheba story for little kids? He lusted after a rubber ducky. That'll work. It's an American audience. And it did. The rest is history. The greatest Christian cartoon ever made. I'm just waiting. Okay, no. Stop. Oh, Lord, forgive me. So here's the application. Lent. Some of us may or may not face our sin. I'm, not, I'm putting anybody under pressure to face your sin. The really, really serious sin is the one we need to not face for protective reasons, right? You can only deal with that when you're ready because it's the big, heavy stuff. I, I get that. And God will, is gentle with us that way. But the thing to get from this psalm is that all of his hope for mercy, forgiveness, and for healing is based in what he believes about the character of God the heart of God, the love of God, because God is like this. I can come even as king and beg forgiveness and maybe receive it for some of the worst sins. Well, before I close, I'll tell you what happened. Prophet Nathan came and said, the Lord has forgiven you. The Lord has forgiven you. And the child you made with Bathsheba will die. And a civil war is going to come into your family. And your sons will rise up against you and against each other. And there will be no peace in your household. There will be division in your household. It's the wrath of God for the consequences of the character of David. There's still pieces to pick up, David. There's still the consequences of what you've done. And they will still be there. And they will taint your name and your your family life, that God has forgiven you. And the lesson there is that there is a distinction between absolution and healing even of our hearts and guilt and the reality of consequences. Very often the Lord does hold back the consequences of our lives. But the sign that we're in our 40 days, the sign that we're wearing sackcloth and ashes, is that we are willing to deal with the consequences of our own sin, head held high, declaring that despite this, he forgave me and I'm filled with the joy of my salvation, filled with the joy of his character and I'm modeling the responsibility of dealing with the broken glass that I left lying around. I'm not blaming God for that. I'm facing that. This is just one section in the amazing life of King David, a really important, if not the most important character in the Old Testament for us to, to know and to learn from. His life goes on in amazing, amazing ways. And he left us the book of songs, the book of poems, in which it is the beauty of God's character that gives hope and builds faith. So those are my, those are my words for you for event one. And then I've got a little benediction and announcement thing, but we can do that after a song.